Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins White Collar and Investigations Chair Marcus Funk interviews Cam Simpson, Senior International Correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week in London and Bloomberg News, about Cam's work relating to human trafficking and other forms of forced labor. They also share their thoughts on the growing trend towards sustainable investing, specifically on ESG or environmental, social, and governance investing, and on the past, present, and likely future enforcement of U.S. and foreign laws and regulations aimed at stemming corruption, forced labor, and related supply chain and compliance misconduct. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Well, Cam, we've talked for a while about bringing you on White Collar briefly, and we're really delighted that you were able to make it and uh, share a little bit about your interesting career, fascinating career and background, uh, and also to talk a little bit about an area that you and I both have a common interest in and have had a common interest in for a number of years, which is the fight against human trafficking. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marcus. It's great. It's great to join you. I appreciate it. So just to kind of kick things off, and again, you know, one of the the cool things about the podcast is we have people from all walks of life, all sorts of careers, you know, a lot of lawyers, obviously, in-house people, judges, etc. In your case, we, we have the benefit of having someone who is not a lawyer, but has basically been in and around issues that are highly significant to lawyers, uh, particularly lawyers like myself in the compliance space for, for a number of years. So maybe to set the stage a little bit, can you give us kind of a primer on your, on your background? Essentially, how did you become an award-winning author and journalist? Uh, what was your journey? Yeah, thanks, Marcus. That's, I, I guess, you know, it started when I was a kid and I was just kind of always fascinated with getting to the bottom of things. I, you know, I was, I had an obsession with detective novels. I had an obsession with Sherlock Holmes. I had an, I don't know if you ever read these books that came out in the 1960s called, uh, the series was called Encyclopedia Brown and it was the son of a police chief and he would always solve his dad's cases. I sort of always had as a child just a total obsession with figuring things out. The Ellery Queen minute mysteries that were on the radio, I had to always listen to them with my mother and, and, and try to solve them. And then I grew up outside of Chicago and Chicago is a real training ground for some of the best journalists, definitely, you know, before my generation and of my generation and absolutely some of the best investigative journalists. As you know, being a former federal prosecutor in Chicago, it's ground zero for public corruption, organized crime, drug trafficking, just, you know, extraordinary issues to investigate as a journalist. And then later in my career, obviously, it was also ground zero for, I think at the time, the biggest price fixing case, white collar crime. It's just, it, it was a, it's a great place to be a journalist. And being a child in that environment and somebody who was just obsessed with investigations, getting to the bottom of really interesting, extraordinary things, I, I was obsessed with the news and the newspapers and I, and I read them voraciously. And 60 Minutes was an obsession. I was, so I kind of, I, my interest kind of morphed into an interest in investigative journalism. I went to an extraordinary high school. I was really lucky and 
had a great high school newspaper. And my first journalism award and my first investigation more than 30 years ago, I hate to say it, I don't want to give away how old I am to everybody, but was head injuries in high school football, head injuries in football. Kind of, it turned out to be a thing. So I kind of, that, that was the birth of my obsession with being an investigative journalist. I just thought it was an extraordinary way to explore the world. And that's really where it began. So just another topic that you were a little bit ahead of the curve on, along with the human trafficking, head injuries. That's amazing. Where, where did you go to high school? I went to high school in a town called St. Charles, Illinois, which you might be familiar with, but probably not a lot of your listeners are. St. Charles is, uh, it wasn't, when I was a kid, it wasn't really even considered a suburb. It was kind of too far west of Chicago to be considered a suburb. It was founded either in the same year or the year after Chicago was founded, so it's been around for a long time. There was an immigrant community there of Lithuanians and Belgians, oddly, who did factory work because it was on a river. So sort of at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, there was a huge demand for workers. I have grandparents on both sides who were children of immigrants, Lithuanian on one side, Italian on the other, kind of a classic Chicago mix. And I guess like the leading member of the community, members of the community, was the Norris family. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they were the, I think, the controlling shareholders of Texaco Oil, one of the key founders of Texaco Oil. They inherited all of his interest in the company, and they quietly gave all of their money to the community over the years. So. Uh, the high school that I went to, St. Charles High School, was actually the most expensive high school in the country at the time that I went there. It had like a sports facility and cultural arts facilities that were better than probably all the universities in Illinois, bar one. And, and that really, it's where a lot of, I don't want to say white flight, but more like really wealthier families relocated, I think, because the high school was so extraordinary. So I also benefited from that in a pretty amazing and, and lucky way. And, you know, the high school newspaper was part of that legacy as well. And it was really great. And I was able to get involved and fell in love with what I do at that point in my life. And when did you uh, begin journalism as a paid profession? In other words, wh where did you go to school? And then wh did you study journalism? And did you then start at a local paper? Or how did that unfold in your career? I started a local paper when I was in university. So I went to university. I went to a small state school in Illinois that probably nobody has ever heard of called Eastern Illinois University. I went there primarily because I wanted to be a Division One wrestler, which didn't happen, but secondarily because they had the best student newspaper in the country for its size, which was pretty extraordinary. The, the newspaper advisor was a guy and his boss was another guy who worked at the Chicago Sun-Times. So sort of that, that culture of Chicago journalism was deep in the place. And journalism is really a craft more than a field of study. It's kind of like going to university to study carpentry. It's not terribly useful, but when you do the craft every day, like at the student newspaper, and you have really great people who are your examples, you know, that's the key to growing as a journalist. So I was lucky I did that my freshman year. And then I majored in international relations. Uh, I came from a, a working class and at times even, even quite poor background. And so I paid my own way through school. So I worked two and three jobs at a time the entire time I was at university, including as a reporter for a big regional newspaper in central Illinois. I started doing that my sophomore year when I took on a double major of political science with a focus on international relations. And I kept journalism as a major just as a, a credential, essentially, but knew that I was going to be a journalist the whole time that I was there. So I started working professionally as a journalist when I was 18. And that was a significant way that I paid my way through university. I was terrified of any kind of debt. I'm not sure I could have even gotten a significant amount 
of loans. Uh, and so that was the course that I chose. And I always had overnight jobs when I was at university because it was an easy way to just trade sleep for money. And one of the jobs that I had was I worked as a pressman. So I sort of worked as a journalist during a day and then I worked on the presses at night, which was great. I really loved it. I'm, I'm glad I didn't. I got to stop doing that when I left university, but it was it was really a great view into everything about the business from top to bottom. And then did you work for some of the Chicago papers or for the regional papers? Yeah. When I got out of university, it was the start of the George H.W. Bush recession. And so I had a job lined up at the Cincinnati Post in Cincinnati, which would have been a great first job out of school. In the summers, I had full-time newspaper jobs or internships. I worked for Scripps Howard Newspapers in Washington, which it was a big chain back then. And they had their own news service that served not just their newspapers, but also was syndicated nationwide. And they created a position for me to come and work a semester in Washington as an entry-level reporter. It was really extraordinary. I got to cover the Supreme Court. I just had an upper-level and graduate-level constitutional law class, which just was extraordinary. Um, I guess it's probably similar to the first con law class you would have at, at law school. At least that's how it was built. But so that was great. I did some investigative journalism when I was there. And then I lost that job because I got laid off before I even started during that recession. And I went back to work for about a year and a half for the newspaper that I worked for, the regional newspaper in central Illinois that I worked for when I was a student because nobody, nobody was hiring then. So after that, Scripps Howard, I went back to work for them. I was their state house bureau chief in Indianapolis. I covered then Governor Evan Bayh, who was a young rising star in the Democratic Party nationally, a Democratic governor in a hard red state. And I worked for them and then jumped to the Indianapolis Star News. And the time that I spent there was really formative for me, just seeing at a state house, especially one where special interests are so rampant as they are in Indiana and have been for a long time and, and pretty unrestrained. I got an incredible upfront view of how politics and money really interact with each other. And I did an investigative series that led to an indictment on bribery charges against the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. I think it was the first state bribery prosecution in the history of Indiana. He pleaded down along with some owners of a major public works firm in the state to lesser charges. And then I went to work for the Chicago Sun-Times and I covered the Dirksen building. I covered federal crime and federal court as a beat. And that also was very formative for me to have sort of a high level understanding of how the FBI and the best of the best of the U.S. Justice Department put together enterprise investigations, put together investigations full stop. The Tribune hired me to cover the same beat as an investigative reporter. I took the place of the legendary John O'Brien. I don't know if you ever knew John. It was the legendary organized crime reporter at the Tribune, and I grew up reading him. So it was kind of like, at that time, at least, that was my live stream. And then 9-11 happened, and that became my life, my background in international affairs. My interest in the world really helped. I started working overseas, and God, I could keep going, but I don't want to bore everybody to death. But that's that's <laughs> sort of that's sort of what happened. Well, I always find it interesting when we talk to folks who have who've achieved as much as you have and who have, you know, really a passion for what they do, to also go through their backgrounds, perhaps a little bit more detail than some might think, because I think it gives uh, listeners a better sense of who you are as a person and who you are as a professional. And I won't ask you about the state of journalism right now and what, what your opinions are about the, <laughs> yeah, the craft sure. the craft of journalism, although that's maybe a, a little bit of a, a, a tip that we might do it later or a little bit of a nod to my interest in that area. But 
you know, now you find yourself, you, you live in London. Am I right about that? I do. Yeah. I've been in London for 11 years. So after 9-11, I started working internationally and living internationally. And in terms of my career, I was on a national and international stage for the first time. You know, I thought covering organized crime and federal crime as an investigative reporter in Chicago was the greatest job in the world. And I didn't really want to leave it. But there comes a certain point where if you're covering global terrorism, you have to leave Chicago and move to Washington. And the Tribune um, nudged me into doing that. And I don't love Washington. I've lived and worked there three times, but it was a good move. And I started doing international investigations for the Tribune, did some work that got a lot of recognition and had some impact. And got hired by the Wall Street Journal. I was their Jerusalem bureau chief, and I essentially had free reign in the Middle East to do investigative stuff for the journal and kind of the big features that the journal has always been known for. And then uh, News Corp and Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal. We had artistic differences. So I moved back to D.C. for the journal and then got hired by Bloomberg after it bought Bloomberg Business Week to do sort of global and international investigations from London for them. And I moved here, I guess now... A little bit more than 11 years ago and i've been in that role ever since kind of different titles but the job has always been the same which is to be their senior international investigative journalist looking at the things that i look at and investigating the things that i investigate globally and as you know marcus because i know you spent some time over here london is really the beating heart of global capitalism in a way that no other place can be just because of where it is on the clock and because Britannia ruled the world when the clock was set at zero here, and language and everything else. And it's really been an absolutely extraordinary experience, and, and I love it. Well, let's talk about one of the areas that you have focused on in your investigative work, and in fact, focused on with great success, both in terms of really producing top quality work, and then also being rewarded with the appropriate awards uh, for doing that work, and that's human trafficking, and basically different takes on, on human trafficking, both uh, in supply chains and, and more generally. Maybe you can give us a, a sense, before we dive into your observations about the issues. And again, you know, I come to these issues really from my time in Kosovo, which we talked about offline and how that kind of sensitized me to the issues and that it's not uh, purely an issue of, of sex abuse, but labor trafficking and that sex trafficking is essentially a subset of that. But how did you first get involved before we get into the work you've done and are and perhaps are doing, how did you first get involved in that topic? Was that something that you'd been thinking about a lot or was it just some set of circumstances that brought that topic to front of mind? It was a little bit of both, Marcus. I think most of the things that in the last 15, 16 years that I've investigated are things that I've been thinking about, reading about, researching, investigating for years. And, and in this case, because I was covering things internationally, I transitioned from covering national security and terrorism to covering diplomacy and traveled in the executive secretariat, first with Secretary of State Colin Powell and then with Condoleezza Rice. And so the State Department kind of gave me like a supermarket as a journalist, you know, just kind of the world was down every aisle and I could kind of pick what I wanted to do. And the Tribune really just encouraged me to cover the beat less and do the investigative journalism more. And, you know, I read every year there were reports the State Department put out human rights reports, as you know, about uh, country by country human rights assessments. And then in, the, I think, 2000, they also started doing what was called the TIP report, Trafficking of Persons Report. There was a division in the State Department to combat and monitor human trafficking around the world. And this oh. human rights reports also included just a section on labor trafficking and sex trafficking, trafficking in general. And so it was something I was really interested in, especially in the Middle East, because up to that point in my career, I'd spent the most time on the ground 
internationally in the Middle East. And you would read horror stories in the State Department reports about, you know, maids in Kuwait, some workers from countries in Asia being brought into the Middle East. And so I had a bit of a background just kind of in the back of my head about the issues. I certainly wasn't a subject expert. I certainly hadn't dug into it, but it was something that I knew and paid attention to. And then in 2004, during the Iraq war, there was this unbelievably horrific case, just kind of during the drumbeat of all the violence against contractors in Iraq after that exploded, of 12 Nepalese workers who, the first one who'd been kidnapped in Iraq and executed at the doorstep of the U.S. military in an act of political theater by a group called Ansar al-Sunnah, a terrorist group. And one of them was beheaded, and then the other ones were all shot and killed in a ditch on film. And it was the first you know, filmed mass execution that was broadcast around the world of its kind, really kind of at the dawn of all that. And it really grabbed me and I was really blown away. And no one explained how those guys got there. And I knew enough about Nepal to know how poor it was and that, you know, these men would have all come from homes without running water, without electricity, without phone lines. You know, I think there was even the penetration of phones was probably 2% in Nepal at the time. I know the internet penetration, I think, was less than 1%. And yet there they were, you know, being decried by these terrorists and executed as tools of the infidels. But no one took any credit for how they were tools of the infidels. And so I kind of just asked the question in my own head of whether that might be related to what I'd been reading about foreign workers in the Middle East all these years. And I wondered, you know, is the US government now tapping the same supply chain that I've been reading about for the past few years of trafficked foreign migrant labor in the Middle East. And my work just steamrolled downhill from there. And, you know, the privatization of U.S. military services was massive during the Iraq war. There were hundreds of Middle East subcontractors working, you know, for the Pentagon, working for the army, working for all the services. And they were all reliant on tens of thousands of what were euphemistically known in Iraq as TCNs, third country nationals. And a lot of them had been bamboozled and trafficked in the ways that we'd read about. And this was just a huge explosion of this kind of activity because the U.S. government was really in a desperate need to win the war. And things were so much worse in Iraq than anyone had anticipated, especially after 2000, you know, probably early 2004 and into mid-2004. And I think think everything else was put on the back burner. It was just kind of a situation that I've seen repeatedly throughout my career with these kinds of issues of it's mission critical, get it done. And that was the only thing that mattered. And so I retraced the journey of these 12 guys from their villages, each of them, through to the main recruiter in Nepal, through just this chain of brokers across the world who literally bought and sold them, kept them in a room in Amman and sent them almost like chattel in a caravan, completely unprotected down the most dangerous road in the world from which they were kidnapped and executed as political theater. And that allowed me to write about this bigger system and explore these issues in depth for the first time. And that's what I did. And you ended up getting an Emmy, didn't you, for the PBS documentary you did on this topic? The series that I did for the Tribune called Pipeline to Peril won a lot of journals and awards, which I was very proud to get the recognition. And PBS also did a documentary based on my work about my work in this case and about me, which I was an advisor on, and they won an Emmy for that. So I didn't win the Emmy award. They won that. Yeah. And then later, as you know, 
I wrote a book about the case, and the book is really about the globalization of labor and the underside of the globalization of labor, and uses this case and the legal struggle that ensued as a result of the case as the narrative frame to tell this story. It was published by HarperCollins in 2018. It's called The Girl from Kathmandu. And in your work, is your sense that the set of circumstances you described with these Nepalese workers, was that a unique situation, a one-off, or do you think that that spoke to a broader issue uh, in procurement? Obviously, when we can talk about the 2012 executive order to strengthen protections against trafficking in persons in federal contracts, which is an Obama-era uh, executive order. So I guess that sort of indicates that it's not uh, limited to one particular scenario. But what, what's your sense of how widespread issues have been? We can turn to the private sector later, but in the public sector, how widespread the issues were back then? Well, it certainly wasn't a one-off in terms of these guys. I mean, the, the same system existed and the same abuses existed you know, for thousands and thousands of men and some women just like them across the experience of the Iraq war. And they continued. So there were some reforms that were born of this. The State Department took it up as a cause. Some people in the Pentagon did as well. General George Casey at the time, he was over some significant portion of U.S. operations in Iraq, and he issued immediate orders that were meant to lead to some reforms. And, you know, essentially, as you know, and probably a lot of your listeners know, these people are forced to buy these jobs. Their passports are taken from them. They're essentially bonded laborers from the beginning, and then there are all kinds of conditions of trafficking that lead through the entire system. So I guess... To the extent that the Iraq war ended, and there aren't really these kinds of significant U.S. military operations abroad right now, it became less of an issue. It continued, and you know, the New Yorker magazine revisited these issues in, I think, 2011 or 2012, relying significantly on evidence from the case that was born of my investigation, the litigation, and I think that, as much as anything, pushed the Obama administration to get involved. How much it's changed, I mean, I, I don't really know. I can't say. I think in terms of supply chains and procurement, it's still a very significant issue in the world, and that involves private companies that aren't engaged in military services, and that's a much bigger issue. And I came back to this work again uh, in my job as an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine and Bloomberg in 2013 and found exactly the same networks were being leveraged in the global electronics industry. You know, staying with the issue of government contracts, and obviously that goes well beyond any kind of military context. I mean, that can be, you know, uh, suppliers of coffee to the Veterans Administration and the Heinz VA and outside of Chicago or, you know, I mean, it, obviously the, well, the U.S. government is the largest purchaser of goods and services in the world by a long shot. And so you mentioned, the, and, and I touched on this 2012 executive order in, during the Obama administration that was a very toothy from a lawyer's perspective. I, I wrote about it back then, and you wrote about it as well. In other words, it has a lot of provisions that require companies to uh, self-disclose problems if they have a reason to believe that they may be selling products in which any materials incorporated into the products are the result of trafficking. You mentioned the, the taking away passports. Any of those activities that before the executive order would have been considered red flags for trafficking now are actually standalone violations. And one of the things I thought was interesting in your writing is in 2013, you said, well, really the question's going to be, 
is this law going to be enforced? Is there going to be enforcement? I don't know if you have any opinions about whether there in fact has been enforcement of this very, again, very aggressive, perhaps one of the most aggressive laws of its kind, uh, at least that I'm familiar with, that requires you, if you've signed a government contract, to essentially make your people uh, and books available to the government. You're giving up any sort of constitutional rights you might have. You agree to cooperate fully. Again, you agree to notify the government immediately when you think there might be an issue. So again, incredibly forward-leaning law with, from my perspective, very limited or almost no enforcement. I don't know if you have any opinions about sort of back in 2013 when you wrote about it and speculated about enforcement, how things are now. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty skeptical at the time as well because it didn't cost the Obama administration very much to do the executive order, right? I mean, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it also, that language goes into the annual defense budget every year as well. And so there is a requirement, but there's been no significant change on the front of forcing coerced and traffic labor globally. It's such a huge problem and such a huge underlying issue that it really, to even have a small dent, is going to require a sea change. And it's going to require probably a huge prosecution to create a deterrent. And it's going to have to be a real deterrent. Right now, it's not a real deterrent. I don't think much happened. I looked at this at the start of the Trump administration. And I don't think much had been put into place to kind of enforce this stuff by the time the Trump administration started. And I think anything that had been put into place was, you know, lost as so much was in the Trump years in terms of um, this kind of stuff, especially. So I don't think any real progress has been made. You know, and that's a kind of a broader topic. And I wonder if you have any opinions about that. I mean, one of the things that uh, you know, there are constant calls for new laws, uh, new laws to fight trafficking, uh, new laws to control companies. I think uh, a skeptic, and I'll count myself as one of those, would say we have plenty of laws on the books that basically outlaw any form of forced labor. And we see either zero or close to zero enforcement. That goes for the executive order, that goes for the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act and, and various other initiatives. What's your sense on that? And then also on the connectivity between public corruption, and we can talk about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and how that became, you know, was, was really spurred into life after 30 years of largely of dormancy by some large investigations and reporting, frankly, that led to those investigations. But what's your thought on the laws versus law enforcement, wh where the balance should be? I think, frankly, it's too big of a problem for law enforcement to tackle. I mean, you could probably make an argument, especially somebody with your background probably would make an argument, and I think it would be a strong argument, that if there was one really killer case, you know, that somebody inside the DOJ was able to put together and put together in a really strong, convincing way, and it was against a significant defendant that that could have some kind of deterrent effect for everybody else. But, you know, the, the machinery of labor trafficking is just so vast and so big and involves so many companies and so many different products and so many different industries that are just too much to, I think, look to the government to solve the problem by going after private companies. I think we need to start thinking about a different approach, probably. It's like so many things. I mean, for me, this issue fits into the broader issue that has been my bread and butter for the last 15 or 16 years. Or I'll put it this way, I mean, a tiny little pond full of lots of giant fish as an investigative journalist, which is, you know, the blind spots created by globalization. You know, we have globalization of capital, now we have globalization of labor. Often it's exploited 
through ways that you and I are talking about and are all too familiar with. But there's no globalization of the regulation of these things. And so those seams between laws, those seams between national laws, those seams between treaties, those seams between standards, that's where the bad things tend to happen. I mean, whether we're talking about oligarchs and money laundering, or we're talking about labor trafficking, or we're talking about just about anything, that's the place where bad things happen. And that's the place where bad things happen to companies without companies even realizing that they're happening as well, because they rely on whatever the local standard is in the place where they're doing business. One of my favorite quotes to get as a journalist, as an investigative journalist who has made his career doing this kind of work from a company, which almost always comes from their lawyers versus the PR person who's pushing send on the email is we follow all local you know, laws and regulations, which is like, that's kind of that that's the point of what i do you know you're following a standard about human trafficking in malaysia or nepal for a company that is on the new york stock exchange and one of the largest companies in the world if not the largest company in the world in the electronics industry you know i mean take your pick so you know i think we have to come up with a different way to think about these things and maybe a different way to tackle them labor trafficking i think is also just a subset of the decline of labor globally as well. You know, in the last, as you know, labor's share of income, labor's share of capital as a percentage of GDP has absolutely plummeted this century. You know, I mean, through the 19th century, wealth was mostly controlled by people who owned land. And with the rise of sort of Anglo-American capitalism and industrialization in the 20th century, that changed pretty dramatically. The idea was that your work can bring you wealth and your intellectual property that you create through your work can bring you wealth. Those are two huge changes. But now in the 21st century, it's shifted again pretty significantly. We've, I think, you know, the steepest decline has been from the year 2000 when labor share of GDP in the U.S. was more than 63%, and in 2016, it was down below 57%, and it keeps going down. And labor as a force, you know, work is so insecure now for so many millions of people all over the world that I think, if anything, these practices are sort of migrating back to the West and not getting better on the other side of the world. So if there was going to be a constituency for this issue that you care about, that I care about and have, have invested a lot in, I think its natural consistency was going to be labor in the political system in the U.S. It certainly is here in Europe, so you have much better, I think, disclosures at least in the EU and in the UK. And I think better systems in general. And that's probably a factor of, of labor still being a force in politics in the way that it absolutely isn't in the US anymore. So I think, you know, we have to start thinking about consumers as much as anything. And I talk about this in my book, when you're dealing with companies, maybe government contractors that rely on clout to get contracts, it's hard for consumers to have an impact because it's not a consumer business. But when you're talking about consumer businesses, you know, attention and consumers can really be a powerful force. And the world is absolutely moving that way in pretty extraordinary ways right now. Let me ask you a little bit more about that, Cam. And this is going to be a little bit of a hybrid question. There's been a lot of speculation that technology, and, and Judge Kendall and I have written about it in our book, the impact of technology, of connectivity, 
on trafficking, uh, both from a law enforcement perspective, allowing greater uh, communication across borders, getting a little bit into some of the gray areas that you talked about where national laws sort of begin and end, but also from the perspective of informing consumers, keeping consumers updated, and then from the perspective of organized crime groups um, using technology to facilitate their criminal activities. And so that's kind of a specific question I have, which is to say, what impact do you think technology has had on this area? But the broader question goes to what you commented on, and that is, do you think things have gotten better or worse when it comes to forced labor in supply chains and just in general? In other words, if we were sitting here in 1985 talking about this topic, when there was almost no attention paid to it, uh, and there was almost no public awareness of what trafficking is, do you think uh, things were worse then, or do you think they are worse now, and why do you think that? That's a big question. First, I would say with technology, like so many things involving technology, the great promise that existed a decade ago, I think, has met with cold, hard reality. You know, if anything, I would say my experience in countries where these workers are hoodwinked, coerced through through fraud and other means to move across the world and give up years of their lives and their family savings or mortgage their land for a job that turns out not to be what they think it is in, in so many ways. If anything, technology has made it easier to reach them in more remote places. If anything, technology has made it easier to get credit to them to pay the broker. So, I mean, technology has been a tool that's been used as part of the system, I think more than it's been used as a savior of you know, technology is going to fix this. I'm sure there are lots of applications that I'm unaware of. I, I really haven't sort of dived back into this issue in many years, so I'm sure that there are plenty of things. But I think generally the promise was overpromised and underdelivered, and I don't see that things are significantly better. I think we're on the cusp now of the possibility of things getting significantly better because there is a huge movement that I think is probably not yet quite apparent in the U.S., but I think it's going to be, you know, one of the bigger social movements of my lifetime, and that's around sustainable investing and making that a real thing. You know, there's an acronym ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, Sustainable Investing. And depending on who's doing the measuring, that's either like a $20 trillion market or a $40 trillion market. You know, asset managers now are just being inundated with requests from institutional investors that this be a part of their scheme. It went from something like, you know, 10% in 2016 of the RFPs from institutional investors to asset managers mentioning this to above 90% last year. And the pandemic has only raised that concern among investors. You have this huge generational shift. Younger investors really, really, really care about not doing harm with their trillions of dollars that they have to invest through their retirements, through their pension funds, and even on Robinhood. You know, we live in the age of Robinhood, I guess. And so I think this is a huge movement, and it's more than a movement. And right now, what we've seen is this huge increase in demand has sort of led to greenwashing, right? And the word green is in greenwashing, but it applies to the labor standards as well. But right now, labor standards and concern about labor standards among huge institutional investors has become 
a really, really top priority. And this idea of sustainability and what companies are doing behind the scenes on these issues is moving from a PR question to a really serious question and a question that they're going to have to address. I mean, trillions of dollars of financial products are being sold with the promise that they're not doing harm. And that's going to come back to bite people if, in fact, they are doing harm. And so it's a thing I think that people really need to worry about now and think about there's going to be some regulation in this area in Europe coming up later this year. I think it's going to happen under the new SEC as well. And it could be a sea change. It could be the kind of thing that actually could make a significant difference. It'll be really interesting to watch how this develops because as you know, when I started private practice, the one thing I think I had a little bit more information on is trafficking because of my Kosovo experience. And we started at the firm a dedicated supply chain and compliance practice, which at the time, my colleagues said, hey, you're being patronizing. Companies don't want to be told about this. This is really kind of a financial and and maybe even an image loser for to get involved in, in this particular area. The firm, nevertheless, was supportive. We started a first practice among uh, the top 100 law firms in the US, and it's really caught fire. I mean, the, the amount of interest you see from companies that perhaps, and I want to get your take on sort of the switch in 2000 or thereabouts, but perhaps years ago would have said, look, this is a marketing issue. We cut and pasted a really good statement from one of our competitors to tell the public what we're doing. And I used to always go around and say, look, this is very risky, legally speaking, because much like what happened in the cosmetics industry, where companies would say, oh, we don't test on animals. And then it turns out they were you know, testing on some, a rabbit's eyes or what have you, and then got sued by all these consumers saying, look, I would have never bought your creams if I would have known how you test them in animals. I would always preach to companies, the same thing is going to happen in supply chains more generally. If you're going to go out there and tell the public that you've got a clean supply chain or that you're committed to fighting trafficking or what have you, then you better be 100% sure that that's true. Because if it's just a marketing team putting together some good copy, you are setting yourself up potentially for some colossal risk. It's funny, ESG is something actually we have a call on later today to talk about sort of a more harmonized approach on how to help our clients with those issues. But the broader push, which is the move sort of into the public consciousness, is something I'd like to talk with you about next, Cam. And another thing you wrote about that I thought was really interesting was that back in sort of in around the 2000 period, prior to that, it was really religious groups that were very much focused on sex trafficking and that there was a shift around that time where you started looking more at labor trafficking more generally. In other words, the greater that included the lesser. Give us your thoughts on that and on some of the perceptions or maybe misperceptions created in the media. I think you refer to them as caricatures of what trafficking looks like in the real world. In other words, how is our collective understanding and our efforts, how have they developed, let's say, starting in around 2000? Look, on sustainable investing, this has gone, exploded so fast and, and so dramatically in the world that I know and cover the most, you know, which is finance and global finance. I mean, it's massive. And as you talk about the potential for fraud and the potential for concern, that's become a reality because it's not just we're putting out a press release or we put out this corporate responsibility report every year and we've got pictures of polar bears and smiling children in Zimbabwe. This is the basis upon which people are investing trillions of dollars now. And you can see headlines if you look for them saying $40 trillion fraud. I mean, I think that's, you know, 
way over-egged and way overcooked. But, you know, the ratings by which these decisions are made, the way that asset managers are making these decisions, the disclosures from companies that are underneath them, they're incredibly squishy. You know, you maybe have a third of asset managers in the world who have even defined what they mean by this stuff. So this is a huge area. And you also have people that care about this incredibly young people especially and there's so much activism now and so much effective activism i mean just look at the reaction by corporations that had contributed to people who supported the idea that the election of joe biden was illegitimate after the insurrection at the capitol there was a massive backlash against every company that had made political donations to lawmakers who had supported the idea of questioning the outcome of the election on the floor of the Capitol after the insurrection. I mean, that kind of, we have now through social media, through everything, a storm can whip up incredibly fast and it can bite you and bite you hard. And, you know, that's why I say when I talk to companies and I get the response of, we follow all applicable local laws and regulations wherever we do business, I kind of smile to myself because that doesn't take into account the reality of the world. So a judge in Malaysia is not, or a judge in Mexico, or a judge in Nepal, or a judge in China, or wherever, is not going to be the person that you need to worry about in this instance. The judge is going to be public opinion, and it's going to be the opinion of investors, and it's going to be the opinions of people who invest their money with those asset managers, or those pension funds. So I could go on forever about this. I've been looking at it. It's a huge shift. And people are, especially in the U.S., have no idea what's coming. And I think they sort of dismiss it as a trend or social justice warriors or however they want to dismiss it, but it's big and it's real. On the caricature of trafficking, you're absolutely right. So what I discovered when I did that investigative series for the Tribune was that the State Department office to monitor trafficking, I think it was the second director, it was a guy named John Miller, who was a lovely guy. He was a former congressman from Seattle. He called me into his office and he was really, he just was blown away. And one of the things he was blown away about, and this is a really intelligent guy, was he didn't know that labor trafficking was a thing. And as you know about uh, roughly, the estimate is 80% of global trafficking is labor trafficking. And, you know, sex trafficking is a 20% piece of of the overall pie and a subset of labor trafficking overall but you know the constituency politically around the issue was conservative religious groups and the religious right really and i think you know that had a lot to do with getting trafficking sort of off the ground as an issue in the george w bush administration but because that's where the constituency was politically there wasn't any focus on labor trafficking at all and he I, I know this sounds ter terribly self-aggrandizing, and I don't mean it that way, but, you know, he was a lovely guy and a thoughtful guy, and he thanked me for kind of opening his eyes to the reality of labor trafficking. So I think there was a bit of a shift from there, but it didn't stick. You know, people still think you're talking about women and children chained in a shipping container. You know, that's human smuggling much more than labor trafficking. And we, we've had cases like that here in the UK, very sad cases. But, you know, the nuance, you know, how it works, as you know, is, you know, somebody is coerced into buying a job or tricked it. And when I say coerced, you know, fraudulently induced into buying a job. And then once you pay that money, once your whole family's future is on the hook, $1,000 is nothing to you and me. But to somebody who's a farmer in Nepal, you know, it's everything. And once you're on the hook, they own you. 
You know, the broker owns you, the person that he passes you to or sells you to almost quite literally, you're on the hook with that person. They control your travel documents, as you know. There's very little you can do. And, and they know that, like all kind of great bullies and exploiters, they know what the leverage that they have is and, and they push it as far as they possibly can. So, the, the, but the nuance of that has been lost. And the cartoonish version is much easier for people to focus on it. I, I'm afraid it, it probably always will be. You know, in my book, I tried to really, it was the first book by a major publisher that really looked at labor trafficking. So, you know, hopefully attitudes are changing, but who knows? I think, you know, one of the issues is in terminology, right? In other words, when most people hear trafficking, they think of it in the context of drug trafficking, moving things. And it doesn't really capture in most people's minds sort of the harboring and use of labor trafficking being equivalent of human trafficking, which is one of the reasons I've, you know, even when we wrote our, our book back in 2010, we use the term forced labor and coerced labor as a preferable term because it's a little more descriptive as to what's going on. And to your point, it really hits that we're not talking about necessarily, although of course this happens, you know, capturing people and forcibly moving them and then keeping them in another place. Rather, we're typically talking about, for lack of a better term, deceit right? Deceiving people into the conditions of their employment, what they're going to be doing, where they're going to be working, how they're going to be working, how much money they're actually going to be paid as opposed to how much money they're going to be charged for room and board. And so the subtlety of trafficking uh, in the real world, I think, is the part that a lot of folks who know it sort of from the media and see kids, you know, being forced to, to work in mines and so forth may not fully appreciate. L let me ask you sort of on the broader sense and sort of picking up on that theme. And one of the things you hear, right, usually not on the record, you'll hear it sort of in private conversation from folks is, look, when we come up with these laws, aren't we essentially engaging in cultural imperialism? Aren't we forcing our values and our uh, standards on third country or other countries? And so when you look, and we can think of a couple of the high profile examples, you, when you look at some of these factories that have been written about, you know, by pretty much every media outlet in the world as being horrible. Nonetheless, when they have job openings, people stand, you know, around the block to try to apply. And aren't we, by doing this, exporting sort of our values, our moral standards onto a world that's not as interested in, in having those standards as we are? So before I ask you the broader question, which is what can we as people, as lawyers, as politicians, as consumers, that would be the big one, what can we actually do? Let me ask you about that argument that you, again, typically there's no constituency for traffickers, right? The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, you'll have people saying, look, this is anti-competitive and other countries do it. In other words, bribery of foreign officials. And there's a little more public pushback by some of the larger you know, industry groups against some of the laws related and the enforcement of those laws. There's really no constituency for, you know, organizations saying, you know, you should really make uh, trafficking a little bit easier uh, and, and shouldn't be so tough on us. But privately, you will hear that argument, especially in academic circles, candidly. I remember doing a debate with a very prominent judge and academic at the University of Chicago who very much expressed this view, which is why do we care? Aren't we just exporting our standards? So again, that's a long wind up, long way of asking a simple question. But what are your thoughts about that position that, again, you're not going to hear often? 
often publicly, but you sometimes hear, you know, in private conversation with folks. Yeah, I think you have to have an understanding when you're doing business overseas to local culture and local issues. And you absolutely have to understand things for yourself and not rely on your local employees, right? But the idea that we're kind of imperialistically saying, don't exploit your people to make my product is somehow exporting our values to them. I think it's more like not importing their exploitation to us, right? I mean, we're entering into you. We're entering into a contract with you. And like everything in that contract, we have a right to declare how we want that contract to be executed. And you have a right to say, go do business with somebody else. So, you know, this is no different than any other contractual arrangement. And Consumers, if you're doing business to the standard of a country where trafficking is rampant and people look the other way and it's acceptable, then consumers, investors, I think, have a right to know that. So I think it's a silly argument, frankly. As far as traffickers don't have a constituency, sex traffickers don't have a constituency. But I think labor traffickers absolutely have a constituency. It's global capital. And it's, you know, the constituency is not like, oh, let us traffic people. But the constituency is kind of almost what you just said, which is, why do we want to put our tougher labor standards on them. And it's not even a question of, you're not saying let's enforce a minimum wage in these countries that's the same as the United States. You're saying let's not use forced and coerced labor in the creation of our products or our goods and services. I mean, it's a pretty low bar, frankly. And I think, you know, it is one of the ways in which we can have a positive impact on the lives of people overseas. You know, I mean, if somebody goes to work for an American company or they're working for a contract manufacturer for an American company and they have a great experience and their family is lift out of poverty, uh, that's incredible soft power that America has had and has used for a very long time in the world. And uh, we shouldn't underestimate the value of that from a political perspective. You know, one of the things I think that our government has done pretty well is train foreign judges, prosecutors, legislators. And again, part of that, there is some kind of, you get a little bit of pushback and I've conducted these trainings myself. I know Judge Kendall conducts these trainings on, on the regular basis, but to really let them understand it's an issue. I mean, when we were in Kosovo, the general perspective by a lot of folks was that it was not an issue. It was really an issue of the internationals that were doing business there. And frankly, also that were the, the American diplomats when it came to the sex trafficking part of the issue of the scourge, that it was an international issue, not a domestic issue. And I think that's changed pretty dramatically. And I think that's probably true around the world. I think you're right. The combination of companies basically saying, look, we have these contractual rights to make sure that when we sell a product to an American consumer, that we can be reasonably assured that the product was made without trafficked labor kind of reminds me of the days when everyone worried about, uh, for example, dolphin safe tuna. You know, that was a big thing and it really made a big difference in how uh, tuna was harvested. And it seems like maybe, uh, to me at least counterintuitively, having uh, traffic-free products is seemingly still an emerging standard that uh, we're, we're pursuing, which is surprising. And I think you're right. I think global sustainable investing initiatives and companies are becoming more aware and that maybe there is a requirement of a big case to raise awareness even further. But how about 
on a grassroots level. So, you know, one of the things I've observed, certainly when I do trainings on this topic, including when I go to places where I speak with and to trafficking organizations, in other words, in California, let's say, they're the, the, the most sort of attuned uh, as a group, at least, to these issues and to market forces. And yet, you know, I, I sometimes, and maybe it's a little cheap trick, but I'll ask people how many of them have ever looked at the California Transparency and Supply Chains Act disclosures of their favorite retailer or manufacturer with over $100 million in global proceeds that does business in California. In other words, how many people have ever made purchasing decisions based on their perception that the company from which they're purchasing either is doing a good job or a bad job when it comes to making sure their supply chains are clean? And at least to me, the surprising result is that when pressed, very few people actually have ever given a whole lot of thought to that. In other words, the disclosure regimes may not, at this point at least, be entirely hitting their objectives. What are your thoughts on that? In other words, how woke when it comes to trafficking do you think people really are? Is there a delta between what people, you know, in terms of their, maybe to some extent, even virtue signaling where they say, oh, you know, this is the number one issue in, in the world right now. And then when you compare it to how their consumer behavior is, is influenced, do you think I'm being overly cynical about that? Do you think uh, there's a big shift? What, what's your perception on, again, the difference between public uh, statements and public expressions of concern versus actual consumer behavior? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you point out, rightly, lots of people like to embrace issues on social networks, especially that kind of can, you know, allow them to signal they care about things that they think other people will think matter, I guess. Nobody does the hard work of figuring out, you know, what's inside their smartphone or where it comes from. Um, nobody does the hard work of figuring out where the garments that they're wearing came from and who the women were who made them and what the conditions of their work were. It's not something I think that we can actually probably expect people to do. What we can expect is, you know, it's really incumbent upon the press to do more, much, much more. It's incumbent upon civic organizations to do much more, but it's becoming much more incumbent now on global finance to do more. Because again, when you're selling investments in these companies as sustainable investments, that's really going to cause a significant amount of tension and friction to make sure that these companies are in fact doing everything that they need to do and can do. So I think, you know, we are, I hate to use the cliche, but I think we are approaching a tipping point on these issues. You can see it already with climate, but I think it's going to reach much, much further than climate. It's going to reach across a broad range of issues that are seen as making up the world of sustainable investing. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that that is sort of a cohesive movement of sorts. In other words, if you have uh, the global financial markets basically baking in human rights uh, concerns, that will inevitably cause companies, I mean, I guess the flip side is it's good good for business uh, if you're my business, but I mean, I think it will be good for the world too. It's money that moves the dial, Marcus, you know that, I mean, on everything, right? I mean, you can go back to the civil rights movement and this is not in any way to detract from the bravery of people on the front lines, but when you look at like New Orleans and what happened in New Orleans and the environment there was really when the black community boycotted the white business owners, that was really what turned things around was the money. Like, we can't afford to do this anymore. You know, that's always what, in our society, at least, especially, can lead to the biggest change. I mean, when, when there's that much money on the table 
and that much at stake, then that's when I think we see change. And that's why I think we're going to see some pretty significant changes in the not too distant future. So we've talked about how companies and individuals are incentivized financially. We've talked about raising awareness and uh, both by the consumer or within the consumer class and also raising awareness across our borders and enforcement. How do you think as we transition from one presidency to another, how do you think the Biden presidency, if you had to use your crystal ball and think ahead, you know, a number of years, what do you think is going to change under the Biden presidency and how does that tie into this sort of movement, uh, this broader movement in favor of a more cohesive and coherent fight against trafficking? I have no idea if there's sort of anything, you know, they have so much that they're dealing with right now, obviously, like, you know, the pandemic, the economic crisis, uh, just for starters. And I think that's going to take up a lot of bandwidth. Again, I'm looking at it through a slightly different lens now. And I think where you might see some impact the shortest distance I can see between here and there is probably in the new Securities and Exchange Commission chairman. And, you know, the SEC has been talking for a while about having some kind of enforceable standards around ESG that don't exist. I mean, it's completely unregulated right now, which is a problem. I think that most people recognize as a problem. And they're talking about having some kind of regulation in there. So I think it's probably, uh, I realize it's not you know, through the front door, uh, it's kind of through the back window, but that's probably the quickest way I can see uh, the new administration having some kind of impact. And it's going to be through ESG again, and it's going to be through standards for companies and standards for asset managers to have to disclose these things in an honest way and rate companies in an honest way. So I think that's probably the quickest way we're going to get there. And how about your personal horizons, what you're working on? Love to hear a little bit about what, uh, to the extent that you can share it, what projects you've got cooking, and then particularly if any of them relate to some of the topics we talked about, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So I ran an investigation for us last year on the easy access that drug cartels in Latin America have had to chemicals sold by U.S. companies made and sold by U.S. companies in Latin America. And I'm still doing a bit of work on that front. And I'm afraid everything else I can't talk about. <laughs> so I can't, I can't talk about anything else that I'm working on, unfortunately. But, you know, the global operations of major U.S. companies is, is always the area that I'm, I'm most interested in in global finance as well. So that's where the space that I'm going to stay in. Well, Cam, I have a feeling that we're going to continue to remain connected on some of these topics, again, maybe from different vantage points, but I think all towards the common goal. I think the work you've done as a reporter and will continue to do, obviously, is incredibly important from the perspective of raising awareness. I think the work that we try to do kind of inside companies to try to both uh, make companies aware of where the risks lie, that they are risks, and we know life is a resource allocation problem that's no no different for companies. And I think as they uh, see the benefits of investing some more of their resources in, in ensuring compliance, with the anti-trafficking and the related anti-bribery rules, and then also sort of the carrot and the stick. Uh, They also see the dangers of not doing so. I think we're going to see a much broader coalition of companies that go well beyond sort of the traditional public-facing consumer goods companies that are going to take this topic really seriously. And I know I mean, speaking for myself, I've yet to find a board that somehow is looking for opportunities to engage traffic labor. But what we do see 
is that they don't always understand the real world dynamics of how this works and how trafficking can sneak into supply chains through vendors and others. And unless you really are vigilant at the gate, uh, it's a real issue. And like you said earlier, there are parts of the world where if you're producing goods there, if you're having things manufactured there, it's really difficult to ever say to anyone that you have 100% uh, certainty that no forced labor, including child labor, was used to make those goods. So I think we're fighting the good fight here, and I look forward to staying in touch, Cam. I hope you are working on some really great projects that also uh, intersect with this topic generally and continue to raise awareness and look forward to talking with you down the line. But really want to thank you for for joining us and for discussing, again, a topic that's very uh, popular right now, but that's also very, frankly, challenging and requires a deft touch, which, again, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate it, Marcus. Thanks so much, and uh, keep up your great work. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com, where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white-collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.